Welcome to Honey, I Just Got Raptured, a Left Behind reread podcast. I'm Aaron, your host, and this week, we go deeper down the disarmament rabbit hole. Last week, Rayford watched a video about the true meaning behind the disappearances while Buck was stuck in the most tedious press conference ever. This week, Rayford's house gets robbed, Buck has an important interview, and I talk about the slumbering threat to our national sovereignty, the United Nations. We're on chapter 14, and it's Monday morning. Ray and Chloe discuss their upcoming dinner plans with Hattie, and Chloe says she's okay with the flight attendant coming over, quote, as long as you don't expect me to cook or something sexist and domestic like that. So, pretty good start. Chloe plans to take Ray's BMW that's been stranded at the airport back home, while Ray will drive his wife's car back. Ray mentions that he'll pick up some groceries before he returns, and asks if Chloe will be okay home alone. She admits it's kind of scary now that Irene and Ray Jr. are gone. Ray agrees, but they'll have to get used to it. Back in New York, reports of Buck's death have been greatly exaggerated. Some of his fellow reporters recognize him, and even Chaim Rosenzweig rushes over to express how grateful he is that Buck's alive. Chaim says they can still get an exclusive interview with Carpathia, but only very late in the evening, as the Romanian president has quite a full plate after his allegedly incredible speech. Buck tries to ask how Rosenzweig and Carpathia started working together, but is forced to sit with the rest of the journalists as Carpathia prepares to start his press conference. Just as before, Carpathia demonstrates himself to be a master public speaker, though Buck doesn't know how a Romanian would have had the kind of experience to navigate this kind of conference. Because, apparently, neither Romania nor the rest of Europe hosts press conferences. Buck notes that Carpathia looks every single person in the eyes at least once, and always looks directly at people when they're speaking. Interestingly, he also possesses incredible vision, and reads journalists' name tags from across the room without difficulty. Carpathia begins to speak again about how much he loves the United Nations. One important timeline detail he includes is that he references Ronald Reagan and George H.W. Bush as being important in the previous century, which makes me believe Left Behind takes place after the year 2000. Specifically, he cites Bush's recognition of a new world order, which he claims was a great inspiration to him. One journalist asks Carpathia what he thinks of the mass disappearances that have rocked the world as of late. Carpathia answers diplomatically, saying that he doesn't want to put down anyone else's theories. However, he's been working with Dr. Rosenzweig to figure out what may have happened. Their theory, conveniently for Carpathia, has to do with stockpiling and testing of nuclear weapons over the past 50 years. They believe a combination of electromagnetism and atomic ionization in the atmosphere may have ignited, causing a phenomenon resulting in the spontaneous disappearance of millions of people. When Buck asks what kind of phenomenon they're talking about, Carpathia instantly sees through his disguise and recognizes him as Cameron Williams of the Global Weekly, which the audience is very impressed by. Carpathia goes on to explain that a combination of subatomic particles and individual electricity fields may be the reason for all children and babies disappearing. Since they had smaller individual electric fields, they could not resist the spontaneous ignition and vanished. Buck then asks what Carpathia thinks of the theory that the disappearances were caused by an act of God. Carpathia begins by stating that he does not want to criticize anyone's sincerely held beliefs, but that he doesn't accept that idea because he knows many righteous people who did not disappear. He thinks a just God would not have caused the destruction that still echoes throughout the world. Furthermore, 
He says that if anyone wants to hear a more in-depth explanation of his thoughts, Carpathia has been invited to speak at the religious conference scheduled for later that month, where he promises to discuss his beliefs about millenarianism, the Last Judgment, and the Second Coming of Christ. Another kind of humorous note is that Carpathia states he will be in the country for about a month. I guess it's fine for him not to be president for a month while he chills in the UN, and no one back in Romania is upset about it. By the end of the night, networks everywhere are calling Carpathia Saint Nick. Even without hammering on his pet topic of global disarmament, he receives stunningly positive coverage, and is urged to take on the role of adjunct advisor to the Secretary General. However, Buck does notice that before Carpathia goes off to do more interviews, he leaves in the company of Jonathan Stonigal. Buck speaks with his editor about this upcoming interview with Carpathia, and asks if he can tag along. However, Buck is still worried about Stonigal, since his friend Todd Cothran nearly blew him up in London. Steve thinks it's not a big deal, as Stonigal would want to get as far away from any scandal as possible. Furthermore, Steve asks, if Stonigal wants Buck dead, where does that put Carpathia in all this? Buck thinks he's just being used by the businessman, but Steve argues that after his stunning performance just now, there's no way he's just a pawn. Buck concedes the point, and he says he has to assume Carpathia knows nothing of the assassination attempt. He hopes he can trust the Romanian to help him out, or his prestigious career will be cut tragically short. Rayford returns home after shopping and calling Hattie, who is happy to have dinner with them on Thursday. He notices the garage door is open, but the front door is still locked. He walks into the garage to discover that all their cars are still there, but Raimi's bike and four-wheeler have disappeared. He realizes the back door has been kicked in, and he runs inside the house to search for his daughter. Basically every valuable piece of electronics, jewelry, and cutlery have been taken. He calls the cops to report the robbery, but thankfully, there's no signs of a fight. He receives another call, and is relieved to hear Chloe's voice. She noticed the missing stuff and broken door, and ran down the street to take shelter with a trusted neighbor. When the cops arrive and take the report, they say crime in the neighborhood has been up 200% in the past week. The neighbors said they saw a carpet cleaning van pull up to the house a little bit ago, which is probably how the thieves got in unnoticed. The cops reassure Chloe that the robbers won't be back, but that they won't be getting their old stuff back either. Chloe, still shaken, asks Ray if they can get another copy of the Rapture tape that was lost in their VCR. Ray says they can pick it up tonight. She laughs, wondering aloud whether the burglars will watch the tape as well. We start chapter 15 with Buck reviewing his voicemails. The first is from Hattie, who apparently realized he was not killed in London, and is asking if Buck wants to grab a drink sometime. The second comes from a police captain in Scotland Yard, who wishes to speak with Buck immediately regarding the deaths of Alan Tompkins and Dirk Burton. The third is from a French Interpol operative requesting Buck call him from a police station as soon as possible. Steve also heard these messages, and wonders if Buck is considered a suspect in his friend's deaths. Buck is wise enough not to heed these messages, as anyone in the police community could be working for Todd Cothran. Steve makes the point that for now, he doesn't actually have to do anything, since neither of those agencies have authority in the United States. If Buck is extradited, however, things could get a little messy. Meanwhile, Ray and Chloe run some errands to replace their stolen belongings. They purchase the essentials, but include a TV and VCR for Chloe. Ray hires someone to fix their now-broken back door, and makes sure to turn on their security system that night. Bruce Barnes happily gives them another videotape, but is saddened to hear about the robbery. Quote, It's as if the inner city has moved to the suburbs. Aren't you supposed to be a man of God, Bruce? Good start. Stuff like this is why I want to monitor how people of color are treated in the series. 
Rayford is secretly very excited that Chloe wanted to replace the tape. Perhaps it was because of the break-in, or because it was because of all the terrible stuff happening on the news, but he's happy to learn that his daughter is looking for reassurance. Which again, gross. When they return home, Hattie calls again. She seems bored and lonely, and they don't really talk about anything. Then comes a part that possibly exceeds the grossness of the entire book thus far. Hattie mentions her sister who works in a pregnancy clinic, and states explicitly that they perform abortions. Ray doesn't say anything in response to this information. Hattie presses onward, and states that since the disappearances, they've had no business at all, because all the unborn fetuses vanished with everyone else. Hattie begins to complain, saying that her sister and her colleagues are all out of work now, since there's no one who needs family planning counseling. Here's the next exchange. Quote, Rayford had to admit he had never found Hattie guilty of brilliance, but now he wished he could look into her eyes. Hattie, um, I don't know how to ask this, but are you saying your sister is hoping women can get pregnant again so they'll need abortions and she can keep working? Well, sure. What is she going to do otherwise? Counseling jobs in other fields are pretty hard to come by, you know. And a few paragraphs down, she says, They need unwanted pregnancies because that's their business. <sighs> I cannot claim to be an expert on maternal care, but I can tell you that people who work in maternity wards and clinics would not be out of work because no one is pregnant. There's an argument to be made that since there's no children at all, there would be no follow-ups, health screenings, and vaccine schedules to keep up with. But the assertion LaHaye and Jenkins are making that healthcare workers who serve pregnant people would be devastated if no one needed abortions anymore is disgusting and willfully ignorant. I generally like the self-flagellating fantasy the Left Behind franchise depicts, but this completely unnecessary aside to talk about how great it would be if all abortion clinics shut down is a major bummer. Back in New York, Buck is informed by Steve that the cops got wind of his interview with Carpathia, and they'll be waiting for him when he gets to the plaza. They float the idea of using his cover as George Oreskovich to get into the hotel, but by this point everyone knows about that fake identity. Steve comes up with a plan to try to pass himself off as George Oreskovich, which will draw the attention of the cops. While they're preoccupied with him, Buck can hopefully slip in unnoticed. It's not Ocean's Eleven, but it's worth a shot. They plan to go to Marge Potter's house, I remember she's Steve's secretary, to watch Carpathia's interview on Nightline before heading over. Before they do, however, they see two unmarked cars pull up in front of Buck's apartment. Buck remarks that this is just like a spy movie. Without explanation, they escape the cops and show up at Marge's house to watch the Nightline interview. Carpathia exudes his usual charm, downplaying his overnight success and coronation as the world's sexiest man, a title that was apparently ripped from a singer who was named two months prior. The interviewer brings up that a business rival of his was murdered in Romania, and that some rumors claim he used intimidation and coercion to ascend to the presidency. He deflects, saying the dead rival was a close friend, and the former president stepped down for personal reasons and asked Nikolai to replace him as a favor. The interviewer also brings up his heritage, asking if it's true Nikolai was actually born in Italy. Carpathia confirms it, which makes me wonder why the authors are so fixated on drawing a connection between Nikolai and Rome, a thread Marge's husband also picks up on. At this point, my best guess is that since the Book of Revelation contains many references to Roman emperors, this is a small way to tie their character back to the literature that he's based upon. Another way the author's intentions are revealed is when the interviewer brings the discussion back to the United Nations. Carpathia expresses his desire to speak in front of the UN rather than the US Congress because of his dream of establishing world peace. 
He states that with a few changes to how the UN operates, they can achieve unilateral disarmament. Specifically, he wants to add five more permanent members to the UN Security Council, in addition to the US, Russia, Britain, France, and China. He would also require these 10 members to vote unanimously on major policy initiatives. While this sounds ridiculous, Carpathia insists that the kind of world where millions of people disappear in a second is the kind that is ready for a unified peacekeeping body. He believes that now is the time for citizens of the world to demand their governments destroy all but 10% of their weapons, which would then be donated to the UN. He pleads with the audience to disarm, empower the UN, and move to one currency so that they may make the world a true global village. We switch back to Ray and Chloe, who are also watching Carpathia speak. Both of them are very impressed with the handsome Romanian. However, Chloe, the only person in this franchise with half a brain, asks Ray if he thinks this guy is anything like the Antichrist mentioned in the pastor's videotape. Both of them agree it'd be very strange for a man advocating for disarmament to be the person who took over the planet. Immediately, the phone rings, and it's Hattie. She asks if they saw the interview, and claims that she is dying to meet Carpathia. She asks if Ray is scheduled for flights to New York, and he says that he's going there Wednesday night and coming back Thursday morning. He asks if she is still going to be able to make it for dinner on Thursday night, but she brushes him off and asks if she can tag along on Wednesday. She plans to meet up with Buck, who she suspects can introduce her to Carpathia. Ray is happy that Hattie's talking about other men she's interested in, and wonders if he should just not talk about his feelings for her at all. He wishes her luck with meeting Carpathia, and she presses the question of applying to work his flight. Ray asks her just to wait and see if the schedule works out that way. Hattie is no fool, and catches on to his attempts to avoid her. She calls him on it, and he stammers, backpedals, and ends up asking if they can talk about it over dinner. She asks why they can't talk about it now, and he says he'd rather not discuss it over the phone. Hattie offers to come over personally, and he says it's too late at night to do so. At this point, Hattie sees what's going on, and asks why he was so friendly to her before when they could hang out privately. Gradually, slowly, and uncomfortably, Ray admits that he did wish they could have had a relationship, but only after another page of making Hattie drag it out of him. She admits that she was a little bit interested, but he never gave her any indication he was into her, so she gave up. But that doesn't mean they can't still hang out, right? Ray says if he wanted her out of his life, he wouldn't have invited her over for dinner. She says she's not interested in a let's-just-be-friends speech, but Ray says he wants to give her more. When she asks what, he says, quote, just something I want to tell you about, which is so extremely creepy, I wonder why Hattie ever gave this loser a chance in the first place. This drawn-out and awkward fight culminates in Ray admitting that he knows why the disappearances have occurred, and he wants to help Hattie find the truth as well. Hattie shuts down at this news, suspecting Ray has become some sort of a fanatic, which Ray inwardly agrees with. She asks him to give her a quick summary of what he's talking about, and he absolutely refuses to do it over the phone. Infuriated, Hattie hangs up, and I've never been prouder of her. We switch back to Steve and Buck when Chapter 16 begins. They arrive at the Plaza Hotel, which is already swarming with cops set on bringing Buck in. Steve steps out wearing George Oroskovich's press credentials, and is immediately arrested. I like this scenario, because it suggests that cops in the 90s not only routinely arrested reporters, but also didn't have, like, pictures of the people they were looking for. Buck sneaks inside the hotel while Steve is causing a scene. He makes to call Rosenzweig's room, but is recognized by a fellow journalist by the name of Eric Miller. Eric asks what's going on with all the cops, and Buck asks him to stay quiet for about half an hour while he gets out of the situation. Eric agrees, but only on the condition Buck explains what's happening. 
Buck says he'll tell him, but he also has to tell some other people. Eric gets the hint, and informs Buck that Carpathia is not seeing anyone else today. But when Hyam Rosenzweig answers Buck's call, Eric starts paying attention. Buck moves to the elevator, and Eric follows him inside. As soon as the elevator doors close, Buck grabs Eric by the shirt and slams him against the door. Buck warns Eric to back off or else, and Eric says it's his job to snoop around and uncover stories. Buck responds that that's his job too, quote, but I don't follow other people's leads. I make my own. Very cool, especially if you view Buck as a wish-fulfillment character for Jerry B. Jenkins. Eric deduces that Buck's going to see Carpathia, and the two race to the VIP floor. Eric is trying to swindle the security guard using Buck's cover identity, but Buck confronts him. The Buck goes to call Hyam so he can decide which is the imposter, but Eric sees which room he's calling and runs down the hall to find it. Buck gives chase, and the two of them end up wrestling on the hotel floor. This fight is broken up by the arrival of Carpathia's entourage, including the man himself. He instantly recognizes Buck. Eric tries to ask a few questions, but Carpathia kindly dismisses him, saying that he'll talk to Eric in the morning. Once Eric departs with his tail between his legs, Carpathia invites Buck to his room, using his nickname, which he's not even sure Hyam is familiar with. Ray, meanwhile, is moping about how bad his conversation with Hattie went. His inner monologue reveals, astonishingly, that his real motivation for speaking to Hattie was to have an excuse to give his Christianity pitch to someone with Chloe in the room. So as it turns out, Ray still actually never cared about Hattie, which makes me want to tear my hair out. In frustration, Ray calls Bruce to vent. Bruce urges him to be patient. Ray responds, quote, It's really hard when it's your own daughter. I can imagine, Bruce said. No, you can't, Rayford said, but it's all right. After that meaningless interlude, we return to Carpathia's hotel room. The Romanian is more than polite, describing how happy he is to be in New York and to have his ideas met with such positivity. While they exchange pleasantries, they receive a call from the President of the United States, a man hilariously named Gerald Fitzhugh. Hyam and Buck spring to leave, but Carpathia insists they stay and listen to the call. The two presidents compliment one another, and it is revealed that the U.S. immediately recognized Carpathia's ascension in Romania as legitimate. Fitzhugh invites Carpathia over to the White House and asks him to personally address Congress. When the call ends, Carpathia changes the subject. He knows Buck has been in a lot of trouble, and he wants to know how he can help. Buck has not mentioned his problems at all, and is astonished that Carpathia is privy to that information. When Buck looks into Carpathia's eyes, he is overcome with a feeling of trust and peace, so he tells Carpathia everything about his friends being murdered and how he suspects Donegal and Todd Cothran are closely allied with the Romanian himself. Carpathia admits it is true, but denies knowledge of the assassinations. He says he is not beholden to any of these international businessmen, and that he knows Buck is telling the truth. Chaim is suddenly called away, and when he returns, he informs Carpathia and Buck that the authorities know Buck is in the hotel. They plan to extradite him to England, where he will face charges for the murder of Alan Tompkins. Buck doubts they'll even get that far, saying if he goes with these people, he's a dead man. Carpathia, in a very Godfather-esque move, says, quote, I can make this go away for you. Alarm bells ring in Buck's head, and he tells Carpathia that he's a journalist first and can't be bribed to receive his help. Carpathia says he would never consider it, and that he has influence over upcoming events that may affect how this ordeal with Stonigal and Todd Cothran plays out. He has Rosenzweig leave the room. Then Carpathia says, quote, I believe in the power of money. He reveals to Buck that during his business dealings in Romania, before he became president, 
he defaulted on a loan from a European bank, which later bailed him out and ruined his rival. Buck asks if that bank was owned by a rich American, and Carpathia dodges the question. The point he's trying to make is that money can be a powerful tool in the hands of someone ambitious and smart, and when such a person winds up in the position that Carpathia finds himself in, an ambitious, smart, rich person can wield some real power. Carpathia goes on to imply that in his dealings with the UN, he's brokered an agreement between himself and the Secretary General, wherein the Secretary General will step down in order to deal with problems in Botswana, leaving the position open for new leadership. This new leadership would include a 10-member UN Security Council, one member who might just wind up being Joshua Todd Cothran. Buck asks if it would not be a mark on the UN's reputation if Todd Cothran were involved in two murders. Carpathia responds that if that was the case, perhaps whoever took over the UN would, quote, want a very clean house just now. We cut back to Ray, who is now in bed, unable to sleep. He can't get thoughts of his wife and son off his mind. Worst of all, he fears for Chloe's soul, knowing that he doesn't want to spend eternity without her. He prays hard, hoping to help Chloe come to Christ and to ease the pain in his own heart. He begins to weep, crying, Chloe, oh Chloe, Chloe. Like Beetlejuice, the sound of her name summons Chloe. She peeks her head into her father's room and asks if he's okay. She sits next to him and tells him that she misses their family too. He says he believes they'll seed them again someday, and Chloe, the only good character in this story, kindly says she knows he does. While it's not as exciting as Carpathia's garbage speech last week, I still like all the political games hinted at in these chapters. Carpathia's secret dealings with the Secretary General and his reorganization of the Security Council paint a wonderful picture about the author's paranoia about the UN. Having been on the end of a couple multi-level marketing schemes, I absolutely sympathize with Hattie, especially when Ray is so incredibly shifty about not discussing his beliefs over the phone. He uses the exact same dodging and avoidance that anyone involved in an MLM does before they ask you for money, and Hattie's not having it. Plus, Ray straight up tells us he only wanted to use Hattie to get to Chloe, and I guess that makes sense since Chloe is closer to Hattie's age than Ray, but he's still a trash person. Anyway, I think at this point you can see how this novel's going to end. Carpathia has plans to deal with Stonigal and Todd Cothran, who we actually have never interacted with except via proxy, so I think they're weak villains, but regardless, we don't know that they'll stick around that much longer. And whatever's going to happen with Hattie, we know Ray doesn't hold her in high regard, so we can assume that she's not going to join the Tribulation Force. In this week's Apocrypha, we're going to look into Nikolai's favorite pet project, Disarmament by Way of United Nations. Carpathia frequently describes his goal of ensuring all countries destroy everything but 10% of their weapons, which would then be donated to the UN's peacekeepers. While the idea of any nation voluntarily giving up its arms is a fairy tale, plenty of folks online are afraid of more or less this exact scenario. Let's take a look at the UN's efforts to encourage global disarmament, and then hear what the conspiracy theorists have to say. Sources for this portion come from the UN's various websites and the Southern Poverty Law Center. So for starters, the United Nations does actually have an active goal of achieving disarmament. In 1998, the Department of Disarmament Affairs was established and has since transformed into the Office for Disarmament Affairs. Its stated vision is as follows. 
The Office for Disarmament Affairs supports multilateral efforts aimed at achieving the ultimate goal of general and complete disarmament under strict and effective international control. Weapons of mass destruction, in particular nuclear weapons, continue to be of primary concern owing to their destructive power and the threat that they pose to humanity. The Office also works to address the humanitarian impact of major conventional weapons and emerging weapon technologies, such as autonomous weapons, as these issues have received increased attention from the international community. The ODA has several programs in place, many of which seek to stop the illegal trade of conventional weapons, promote voluntary disarmament in conflict zones, and stop the proliferation of weapons of mass destruction, specifically nuclear, biological, chemical, and missile weaponry. In regards to nuclear weapons, the UN has played an important role in establishing nuclear-free zones, which currently extend to Central and South America, all African countries, most Asian countries south of China, Australia, Central Asia and Mongolia, Antarctica, the bottom of the ocean, and outer space. UN peacekeepers have played an important role in demilitarizing militia groups in South America, Africa, and the Middle East. Their DDR initiatives hope to disarm, demobilize, and reintegrate current and former armed combatants into society. From the Peacekeepers website, now mandated in Haiti, the Central African Republic, Mali, the Democratic Republic of the Congo, and Darfur, the UN has implemented community violence reduction programs encompassing a range of initiatives from labor-intensive projects, business incubation and community dialogue forums, to direct engagement with members of armed groups as well as youth at risk to prevent further recruitment. Community violence reduction also plays a key role in reducing tensions at the grassroots level to increase opportunities for social cohesion and conflict resolution. Now that all that propaganda is out of the way, let's see what the true patriots are saying about the UN. So straight up, searching anywhere with the words disarmament and conspiracy together is going to show you a bunch of videos about how mass shootings are staged in order to give the government permission to take your guns. So, uh, we know the kind of people we're dealing with. Frankly, I also don't want to give these websites traffic, but the gist of one site which advertised a startlingly racist LEGO playset was that besides all the mass shooting stuff, the UN frequently includes language in its disarmament talks which describe the need to ban civilians from owning conventional arms. While these discussions are not referring to the United States, the UN does not support unrestricted firearm ownership among the countries it currently serves. The United States is somewhat similar to countries where the UN is trying to disarm former militants, and that it is often very easy for people to obtain weapons without difficulty. As anyone familiar with American politics knows, even the criticism of private citizens owning firearms draws outrage from many corners of the internet. However, the conservative arm of American media has spun up its hatred for the UN based on far more than their pro-safety agenda. When George H.W. Bush signed onto the UN's Agenda 21 back in 1992, it immediately resulted in a sustained disinformation campaign with lies ranging from ludicrous to dangerous. Agenda 21 is a non-binding agreement among nations divided into four sections, all with the goal of creating a more sustainable future. Typical hippie stuff like fighting poverty, protecting the environment, and using technology to provide opportunity for disenfranchised populations. However, right-wing agitators more or less invented whole-cloth conspiracies out of this initiative. Texas Senator Ted Cruz claimed these programs would result in the abolition of golf courses and paved roads. Tom DeWeese claimed the plan was created in order to birth a new evil religion with the purpose of turning America into a dictatorship and reduce its population by 85%. And of course, our favorite ex-Fox News contributor Glenn Beck had something to say as well. 
Quote, In 2012, Beck went further, publishing a dystopic novel with co-author Harriet Park called Agenda 21. It purports to tell a post-Agenda 21 tale of America, a place where the beleaguered heroine is confined to a depressing apartment in a planned community, spending her days treading on a special pad to produce energy. In this world, children are taken from parents and raised in group homes, mating partners are assigned, and people recite pledges in honor of squirrels. If the United Nations, in partnership with radical environmental activists and naive local governments, get their way, then the themes explored in this novel may start to look very familiar very quickly, Beck writes in an afterword. Remember back in 2016 when we all thought Glenn Beck turned a new leaf? Ah, good times. Anyway, I don't forgive him, and I don't forgive anyone who supports whack jobs who want more nukes in the world. The UN isn't trying to brainwash your kids, they just want less death, which by God we could all do with these days. Much love to the Kurdish people. That'll bring us to the end of our show. Please don't forget to give us a five-star rating and review on Apple Podcasts. If you're just as obsessed with this stuff as me, consider recommending the show to a friend. Follow at RapturedPod on Twitter for news about new episodes. Follow me on Twitter at AaronSXL so you can get my opinions on books way better than this one. Hope you all have a great week. This has been Honey, I Just Got Raptured, a podcast of the Earth's last days.